1: The Taoiseach has expressed uh, concern for Irish troops stationed in Lebanon amid fears of an escalation of violence in the Middle East. Uh, Irish peacekeepers in Lebanon have been forced into what they call groundhog mode, meaning they take shelter in designated bunkers during rocket attacks. At the meantime, the disinformation or malinformation or misinformation wars go on on social media, even though TikTok has said it has taken action following an official warning from the European Union, which said. The site was being used to spread uh, disinformation on the ongoing conflict in uh, Gaza. I'm joined by two guests, Kahal Berry, Independent TD and former Army Ranger, and by Dr. David Robert Grimes, scientist, author, and disinformation specialist. Good morning and welcome to you both. Kahal, we'll start with you first of all. Um, what are the Irish troops doing out in Lebanon? What's their mission?
2: Yes, we have about 500 troops uh, in the Middle East at the moment, about 340 in Lebanon, 140 in Syria, and about a dozen then scattered around Palestine and Israel. But the main job of the the people based in Lebanon is really to patrol what's called the Blue Line. It's not an an official frontier between Lebanon and Israel, but it is a line of demarcation. And their job is to provide stability there, provide reassurance, and crucially, it'll probably uh, dovetail nicely what Dave uh, Dave is going to talk about, but they do provide highly accurate, uh, highly reliable information back to UN headquarters in New York as well. The army called this thing called the, the Mark 1 eyeball, the mm. most sophisticated surveillance device known to man or woman basically and it's really really important from a conflict point of view where you have accusation and counter accusation the people on the ground, boots on the ground that are providing very impartial, very very accurate information back to decision makers.
1: Now we're, we're told about Hezbollah incursions into Israel, I mean would they have a job of intercepting these and preventing them from crossing that line?
2: Well, they, they, I suppose they, they reduce the risk of it and they deter by their presence alone um, but our, our troops are very well protected over there. They do have as you said the air raid shelters in case there's a rocket artillery attack or if there's an air attack but they also have the means to protect themselves so our troops over there they do have missiles and they do have mortars as well. They only use them in last resort and self defence but they do have the means to intervene should they wish should the operational situation require it.
1: Now uh, the idea that they would uh, do this groundhog mode uh, when they're under rocket attack I was in uh, Camp Shamrock which 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 is now no longer there, uh, years and years ago. And, And that was what we were told when we arrived. If the sirens go off, go into the bunkers. Yeah, absolutely. So it's very important that we, we tweak or the troops tweak their operational
2: schedule based on the operational situation. So, I mean, there's no point in taking unnecessary risks. I mean, being out there is a risk in itself. But as we'd always say, if you fly across the Atlantic in a commercial airliner, that is a risk. But if you put the best crew possible uh, on board, the risk dramatically reduces. Mm. So we have some great people out there.
1: The, Army's the I, people. I presume that uh, the Hezbollah, if they wanted to uh, get across the border, they peg a few rockets across force everyone underground and while undercover, uh, um, when everyone else is undercover, they can sn- sneak across. Yeah,
2: well, it won't be everybody inside in Granatog. There's always a number of people who have to maintain surveillance and observation, basically. So in that circumstance, the Irish troops would record what was happening and, and report it back while the majority of troops, it'd be like the, the tip of the iceberg, that 10% of people would be above ground yeah. and the other 90% would be below.
1: But it's not their job uh, to confront the Hezbollah and say, you're not going there, we're going to fire at you or whatever to stop you making that incursion.
2: So it's not part of their mandate, but they do have a mandate to protect civilians. So if civilians are being targeted, they can intervene and they should intervene as well.
1: But they can't necessarily stop them crossing the border.
2: No, not part of their mandate. But again, uh, the Israelis are well capable of stopping them crossing Mm. the border as well. So why should we intervene?
1: So when you hear of concerns for their safety out there, what's your reaction? Yeah, there's always
2: concerns uh, for the safety of troops. Uh, it is an occupational hazard, It's like a member of the Irish of patrolling on Collins Street. But the, the key thing is to mitigate against that. And there's an excellent team out there. Um, Lieutenant Colonel Kyle Gahan and Sergeant Major Paula Byrne, they're highly experienced people with um, multiple tours of duty under their belt all over Africa, the Middle East and the Balkans. And the main thing is get your people right and the risk dramatically reduces. All
1: right. So you don't believe they should be taken out of there?
2: Uh, Absolutely not. They're they're needed at all times, but they're particularly needed in times of conflict. And there's 10,000 UN troops in UNIFIL, um, from about 40 different uh, countries. And this is well within the comfort zone of Irish troops, uh, not only to maintain their presence there, but also to to perform.
1: Now, if Lebanon was to be dragged into the conflict, and there are many who say, no, they don't want to be dragged in. They're stony broke, their economy's in ruins. And to drag them into a war with Israel would destroy them even further.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Lebanon, unfortunately, it's a, it's kind of, it's where history and geography collide, is how to describe it. So it goes back centuries. Uh, and Lebanon is a very unfortunate country in that it's basically a playground for all the large powers who don't want to fight directly themselves. So Israel and Iran, for instance, they don't want to have a direct confrontation, but they use proxy forces uh, in Lebanon to launch attacks at each other. And that's where Hezbollah comes in. It's, it's funded and supplied uh, by Tehran, uh, but they do uh, engage with Israelis from time to time. And the big risk, is, of course, is if the Lebanese armed forces get involved as
1: well. Do the Israelis fund any militias anymore? They did have a an issue called the SLA, the South Lebanese yeah. Army,
2: but officially no anymore. Um, so they don't actually have a, a de facto force that they had in the past. Um, um, but th- I mean, that's the, their official line at least. Yeah. I presume that their 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 intelligence services, Mossad and Shin Bet, do have uh, informants.
1: From, from your uh, experience of the region, uh, I mean, how much Sympathy is there for the Palestinians because we've been told over the years that some Arab states think they're just annoying that they should be there. They've been displaced from their traditional homelands, but there's no going back. I mean, the right to return and reclaim property that has now been occupied by Israelis since 1949 and even further back, that it's never going to happen.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So there's a lot of sympathy from, from Ireland for sure for the Palestinian cause and the Palestinian question. There's not a whole lot of sympathy in, in from their Arab brothers. And just look at Egypt at the moment. Um, people would say that Israel are enforcing a um, you know a blockade on Gaza, but Egypt is doing precisely the same in the southern edge. And a lot of Arab countries are normalising their relations with Israel as well uh, at the moment. That's causing a lot of difficulty.
1: But is Palestine. that not what uh, uh, Hamas wants to stop in its tracks? Absolutely, d- d- disrupt by forcing. Israel, uh, which it always will, to respond with massive force. Then you know they've got it's the politics of atrocity, really,
2: precisely. And
1: what the Palestinians
2: and Hamas were hoping for is prior to normalization of relations between Israel and other Arab states that the Palestinian question would be put to bed. But unfortunately, uh, Arab countries are normalising relations with uh, Israel before the Palestinian question has been put to bed. So you, you can see that, that Saudi Arabia and Israel, they were on the cusp of striking a deal. And that's one of the reasons why the, the, uh, the Hamas actually struck uh, 10 days ago.
1: Now, uh, Dr. David Robert Grimes is listening to this, uh, an expert on disinformation. Um, it's all new now. In the last decade or so, the social media revolution has changed the nature of disinformation.
0: It's absolutely changed the nature, but I think we have to remember that the old adage is truth is the first casualty of war. No. So this has always been a problem and has always been a problem in conflicts. But what we're seeing now is a different front. If you're not me to use social media as a front, unfortunately, but there's a level where the discourse has now gone on. People can say whatever they want and there's very little verification. Since Elon Musk has taken over Twitter or X or whatever you're calling it these days, it is, there's even less fact-checking than there has been before. Now, what you're seeing an awful lot of is in this conflict is people, there's a reason disinformation gets so popular during a conflict. And one of the reasons is that the decisive actors, say Russian state forces or even Iranian state forces, what they like to see is conflicts that they can find as a wedge issue. So if you take something like Israel-Palestine, which is one of the most emotive wedge issues you could think of, you can polarise that discourse either way. And you can divide your enemy or divide things like that. What we're seeing an awful lot of, for example, a lot of the anti-Gaza or anti-Palestinian information is actually coming from India. And the reason it's coming from India is this is to do with the Hindu nationalist movement uh, under Modi. And this is seen as promoting or making Modi look better to his home audience. So a huge amount of current disinformation is actually coming from India, showing that more and more state actors are now getting involved in what Even
1: though it's none of their business. None
0: of their And in the same way, it's never been Russia's business in a lot of their conflicts to to stick a wedge in. What's really important is that disinformation isn't supposed to convince you. It's supposed to divide you. And a war is already, by definition, a conflict. So this is people capitalizing on that to polarize audiences and to cause and sow but the season war Now, division.
1: clearly, there are images available from both sides, from... Uh, the destruction in Gaza wrought by the Israelis and by the, the atrocities committed by Hamas in Israel. So there's plenty of raw imagery uh, available. Uh, you would think that, but a lot of the stuff
0: that's being circulated and getting very popular is actually either staged or out of context or in, many ca- so in one case came from a video game.
1: The I people. saw that as a video, of Hamas taking down allegedly an Israeli helicopter and it's video game footage. Yep, yeah. And this is
0: miscaptured. We saw this at the beginning of the Ukraine war a lot uh, as well. People will take this. of It's so, something that is already highly emotive. And then people are trying to exacerbate that. They're trying to add fuel to that fire. And that's not to bring clarity. That is to sow further seeds of discourse and polarise things further. I think it's really important to realise that the goal of this is never to really convince. I mean, in some, in some cases it is, but mainly it is to divide. It's to raise the temperature. Absolutely, to raise the temperature. And you don't have to make... And also the things you said there about both sides, there's an argument that there, if you're a Palestinian person trapped in the gas strip, you're not even on a side, you are the hostage of, of two conflicting powers. And that gets washed out in the narrative when it becomes side A versus side B. The real situation is far more nuanced. And as every, every, everyone knows, this is an incredible, complicated and nuanced issue. Mm-hmm. So disinformation will always will, will, strive to simplify will
1: that. Will you explain uh, the difference between disinformation, misinformation and malinformation? I absolutely will. So misinformation is typically defined as inadvertent uh,
0: misconceptions. So if I've, I've heard something that is that is untrue and I, I perpetuate that, that's probably misinformation. Disinformation is the deliberate propagation of something that is false and malinformation is the weird cousin that people don't talk about as much malinformation is when you take a fact out of context to misrepresent it so you're lying with the truth by omission Uh, so we see these three things playing out an awful lot for example Um, we've seen with with faked video clips, that's disinformation that is deliberately being put out there, particularly the stuff coming from India, but some is coming from Russia. And again, there's also a lot coming from the fact that this is a high temperature issue already, that people already have a side, so to speak, even though it is more nuanced than just sides will allow. And people will try to uh, build up or fortify their side and they're happy to sometimes lie to do so.
1: Um, There is obviously a lot of citizen journalism going on in the sense that people are capturing images, you know, in the kibbutzim uh, after the Hamas atrocities and in Gaza after the bombings. So there's a lot of raw material there that, you know, is real, but, you know, only if you're an Israeli, you're showing what happened to your fellow citizens. If you're a Palestinian in Gaza, all you can show is what has happened to them.
0: Absolutely. And there's selective curation of information. And this is why independent media sources and fact checkers on the ground and and your your first responder witnesses who report back to the UN, this is really important to contextualize information. Mm -hmm. And one thing I would say to people is when you see information or things online that make you angry, it's very important to stop and go, firstly, is this in context? Secondly, is this designed to make me angry? The biggest single predictor of whether something is shared on social media is if it induces a feeling of outrage or disgust. That's the single biggest predictor. And you have to often ask yourself, why am I being shown this? Um, and also, has, is this coming from a reliable source? Citizen journalism has a lot to, a lot of good for it, but it also is a fantastic vehicle for bad actors to manipulate
1: audiences at home. Um, do we know how the social media platforms are making money out of this? I mean... When you have uh, whatever kind of curation goes on, but th- surrounded by advertising, it's kind of obscene.
0: The curation is, is window dressing and they've never really cared. Remember, most of these, and we saw this during the pandemic an awful lot as well. Uh, Facebook had that leak where they were, we, or Meta now, they were, they had information that we could actually crack down on disinformation on our platform. But they have no interest in doing so because it's not in their financial incentive to. These are highly engaged groups. When people are angry, they are highly engaged. They are partisan, they're online all the time. They're exactly the audience that social media companies want. So a lot of the times when they talk about regulation, they are doing lip service to a concept. It would take a supernatural or um, a national body to actually do that or an international body because some of these companies have bigger economies than countries. So regulating them when it's not in their financial Um, incentive to do so is not going to happen. So when the
1: EU tells TikTok uh, to get its act together and to properly curate the stuff, what's going to happen? Well, that might have some clout because
0: it is the EU. If it was Ireland alone, we'd have no clout. But again, this will come down to regulation because these companies will always tell you, yes, we're doing everything in our power. And they are not. I've sat with people from these companies and they've told me that to my face on different issues and we know they're not. So again... what they face... Very significant fines if they're caught. Yeah, and that's getting and that's a relatively new thing, and that's exactly where we need to go. It needs to, they need to be treated like publishers. Essentially, is the only way this will ever be regulated. But that's not going to happen today or tomorrow. So for now, we have to be self-aware that a lot of the stuff we see on these platforms is not is not validated, and is put out there for a deliberate reason to
1: engender more anger. And, and we haven't gone near deep fakes, which is a whole other area where you can make Netanyahu say something he didn't say, or Putin or whatever, uh, that's possible. Uh, going back to you, Cahill, the, the question of the Hamas attack initially, and I mean, by sea, by land, by air, uh, using all sorts of contraptions to get across. It, it strikes me that the number of rockets and the breadth of the attack, it must have been planned for a hell of a long time. We know the Egyptians allegedly gave a three-day warning um, but a failure of Israeli intelligence. And you're wondering, all the money that Hamas spent on all of this could have been spent on their own people.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the, the attack was a major breakdown in um, Israeli intelligence, for sure. The, the head of Shin Bet there apologised in the last 48 hours as well to the, to the Israeli people. But if you, if you think back of what happened in Israel over the last six months, there's been a major societal uh, division. Um, obviously, we have a right-wing government. They're targeting yeah, judicial trying reform. To t- yeah, absolutely, that destroy res- the courts. A lot of reservists, military reservists, saying we're not showing up for work. So when, when that dynamic exists, countries are vulnerable and Hamas decided to take full advantage of that.
1: Yeah. Um, but to actually construct the... These rockets, how they, where they came from, what border crossings? Do they? The, there's a sea blockade, and uh, uh, you know, by the Israelis. And yet they're able to manufacture, construct thousands of rockets. Absolutely.
2: And they're well funded from, from Tehran as well. But I just want to double on what, um, what Dave was saying about uh, social media. Uh, I mean, I agree entirely with him. Uh, Twitter doesn't really exist anymore. It's been replaced by X and X is a completely different animal. X has no moderation whatsoever. It's drawn on autopilot. That's the first point. And secondly, it's not just the content of social media. It's the accessibility of social media. Everyone carries social media in their pocket now. The vast majority of people. It's not mm. like your PCs inside your office or your TVs in your living room. People bring their phones to bed and it's, it's available yeah. 24-7. That's the big issue.
1: Well, propaganda used to be about the big lie. And I mean, Donald Trump is a great exponent of the big lie. I won the election, Data, the election was stolen uh, and so on. But now you've got a multiplicity, uh, David, of small lies that all accumulate into what people imagine to be the truth.
0: They have to do. You have a thing called illusory truth, which is the more you are exposed to things, even that you know them on a conscious level to not be true, you are more likely to implicitly start accepting them solely due to exposure. So it's an exposure-based effect. There's also the availability heuristic. There's the idea that things that are easily available seem to carry more weight for us because they're easy to recall or we see them more often. And unfortunately, social media, we, we have, we've have—we've always had these problems. These are always been human problems. But social media has really highlighted just how vulnerable we are to them, and we still haven't worked out that dynamic. So we're still in a very vulnerable era, where even though we are ostensibly quite savvy, we're really not when it comes to working out the biases that we're all subject to.
1: Dr. David Robert Grimes, scientist, author on disinformation, specialist and Kahlberry TD, uh, independent TD, former Army Ranger. Thank you both. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk.